This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. Deadly winter weather still wreaking havoc across the country. Tonight, travel is still a nightmare with thousands of flights canceled and passengers stranded in airports. Unless one of those passengers gets a wild hair and decides with a group of other passengers to rent a car and drive 20 hours to their destination together. That's exactly what some of our guests tonight did. In a little while, I'll introduce you to this group of intrepid travelers, total strangers, who had quite an adventure when they decided to drive from Tampa to Cleveland together, and they recorded their trip, and it went viral. Meanwhile, 10 million people across the South are under freeze alerts. And the death toll from this storm is rising. At least 49 people have died across the country. 27 of those are in the Buffalo area. And authorities fear that they'll find more bodies in cars as they begin to dig out from what's being called the worst storm in the region's history. You can see some of it there. And while police have their hands full with rescues, stores are being looted. So I'll talk to a supermarket manager who spent Christmas Eve watching his store get broken into. I want to bring in now CNN's Miguel Marquez. He's live for us in Rochester, New York. You were supposed to be in Buffalo. Miguel, we understand, but what happened? Yeah, we're, Buffalo is socked in. There is just no way in or out. They have a, a travel ban in the city itself right now, and the snow is just so intense that it is almost impossible to get in. They uh, Officials there are, are trying to plow those streets right now, trying to get to those cars and to those homes from people they haven't heard from. 27 people already dead in Erie County, New York, and they fear there will be more. An unprecedented storm, devastating and deadly, hitting western New York. We now have what will be talked about, not just today, but for generations, the blizzard of 22. Parts of Buffalo pummeled with up to 43 inches of snow and hurricane-force winds, and the death toll of at least two dozen people in the area. There's going to be a lot of welfare checks, and unfortunately, um, I have a bad feeling about that. I think uh, the toll, that toll is going to go up. It's just gut-wrenching. Erie County, New York, brought to a literal standstill with people trapped in their homes and cars. This was the first time in Buffalo fire history that they could not respond to emergency calls because of how severe the conditions were. County officials sending in specialized trucks to rescue the rescuers. I couldn't see two feet in front of my vehicle, and we had to rescue uh, deputies. We had uh, So we brought in snowmobiles, UTVs, ATVs. When fire rigs are getting stuck, that heavy equipment, you can imagine what happened to the public. While most major highways have at least one lane clear for emergency traffic, many residential roads are still impassable with vehicles abandoned in the middle of the street. We have had snow plows, major snow plows and rescue vehicles. I saw them myself in ditches buried in snow. Officials urging residents stay home. Stay off the roads so we can continue to rescue people, get them safe, and make sure that the roads are clear so we can reopen our community as soon as humanly possible. Buffalo under a driving ban, but that hasn't stopped some from taking advantage of the situation. Police have made arrests for looting. Videos on social media shows looters at work. Merchandise being carried out on foot. People who are out looting When people are losing their lives in this harsh winter storm, it's just absolutely reprehensible. 
all while thousands of homes and businesses are still without power. One family who lost their heat tried to make it to a hotel on Christmas. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't see a stoplight. So it's like you kind of just had to drive through the intersections praying. Basically. Their prayers answered by airport firefighters who were able to rescue the Tisdales along with dozens of other trapped drivers. Those guys were amazing at the firehouse. Um, they treated us with nothing but love and um, welcomed us with open arms. So we should point out it wasn't just those individuals that were rescued. Rescuers were able to uh, pull about 550 people out of pretty severe conditions. So rescuing over 500 people in the area, they are hoping uh, to do that more. And if there's any good news on the horizon, on Thursday, it's meant to go up into the 40s. And on Friday, it's in the 50s, the big melt will be on by week's end. Allison? That's great, but there's many days to go before Thursday. I mean, and it's still frigid there. I don't have to tell you. Do you know how much um, of the power is still out in that region? Several thousand people are still without power everywhere you drive in this region. And we try to get into uh, Buffalo today and, and everywhere we went, you saw the power crews out there fixing lines, uh, you know, down trees, all, all sorts of issues, bringing down power. Several thousand now. So they've gotten tens of thousands of their, their power back, several thousands without. But it is very, very cold here tonight. Again, uh, several many people have been without power for several days now. Allison. Okay, Miguel, go get warm. Thank you. We really appreciate you doing the report for us. Now I want to bring yeah. in Dan Eichelberger. He's the upstate district manager for the Save-A-Lot grocery store in Buffalo that got looted during the storm. Dan, thanks so much for being here. I know you had a an upsetting Christmas Eve because you were watching your store get looted. How did you, how were you able to watch that happen? Oh, uh, it, it was tough, Allison. Um, you know, Christmas Eve, you want to be doing other things with your family. Um, our phones went off with the alarm that, you know, people were in our store. Um, we have camera systems. So, you know, of course, we checked in to see what was going on. And um, it, it was just ridiculous to watch. Um, what did you put see, put an awful Dan? lot of work into the store. Well, we were able to look in and we were able to watch. Um, I think we gave you guys some video um, so you guys could share it. Um, um, of people actually just coming into our stores and uh, looting and destroying everything in our stores. Um, so it was, it was just really heart wrenching to walk. It went, it went on all day. Um, and it went on through the night. Um, so it, it was, it was difficult to watch on Christmas Eve and on Christmas day. Yeah. That's no way to celebrate Christmas, Dan. We feel for you. And as soon as we are able to process and turn around that video, we will share it with people. Um, and did you call the police while this was happening? Uh, we did. Our alarm company did call the police. Um, and then I tried myself in order to call, um, I mean, as they said in the, you know, the news uh, briefing there that, uh, you know, they were unable to answer any of the calls in the Buffalo area, that 911 system was basically down in Buffalo. So that was very hard. Um, you know, I mean, someone when you own a business and you're seeing your business being looted, um, you want the police there, you know, and, you know, we did, you know, we wanted them to stop, you know, doing what they were doing. Um, it's very tough in this area of Buffalo. Um, it is a food desert. Um, in this area, um, as a lot of people know, after the uh, the Tops uh, shooting, there are very few grocery stores in this area. Um, so, you know, our goal is to, you know, try and maintain this business and, and keep it afloat um, in order to help out the Buffalo community. Yeah. Hey, Dan, we, we now have that video that you shared with us. So this is closed circuit TV that you were able to watch on Christmas Eve and you're watching the looters just go through your store, you know, right. obviously 
uninhibited because there's police are busy that night um, and not able to do it. Uh, are you, do you know what they stole? Was there, a, I mean, what kinds uh, of things were they looking for? It really was everything. Um, it really wasn't the normal things that you would think that people would take. Um, the turkeys, the hams and things like that. Those are all still in the store. It was candy bars, batteries, um, individual bottles of soda, um, just, you know, a lot of stuff. And, you know, as the night went on, it became less in the looting and just in the destruction. Um, all of our registers were destroyed. Our computers were knocked out, um, which is probably one of the biggest problems that we have because in order to get up and running, we have to make sure that we have a point of sale system um, working. Um, luckily today, um, we did an awful lot of work with uh, Corporate Save-A-Lot um, and they're overnighting us um, some equipment. They're going to overnight a person here as soon as the airport opens up in the morning. Um which is outstanding for them as a company. Um, These stores are all independently owned. We're all small business owners, um, which a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. And Dan, I mean, that's part of what makes this so sad uh, is that, you know, obviously the community is struggling enough because of this once in a generation storm and it's Christmas. And as you say, you know, people often wonder, are these desperate people who are breaking in for formula and diapers and hams or are they kids or whatever, I mean, characterize it however you like, who are just, as you say, bent on destruction and stealing candy bars. And so, you know, just yeah, from I mean, what, yeah, go ahead. What's really sad is, I mean, you look at the timestamp on, this is 30 minutes after midnight on, on Christmas Eve. Um, you know, like I said, they really didn't take food. It wasn't people that were coming in looking for food because they were hungry or, you know, because the stores were closed or anything. It was just looting um, and destruction. Um, so, Dan, when are you going to be able to? Are, are you open again? You're not. Is the store open yet? We, we are not open. Um, we got in there today. Um, we got in there around eleven o'clock today. Um, we kind of had to wait for things to calm down in that area. Um, there were a lot of carjackings and, and things like that. Not to mention the the area is just hard to get around in right now because of the snow. Um, but my management team, we all got in there. Um, one of our liaisons with Corporate Save Lot went in there with me this morning, um, and we spent the day getting it all cleaned up. Um, I've got some really great kids that work for me. Um, as soon as they heard that we were we were um, opening the store, they were down there to greet us, and they worked all day um, in order to you know help us get cleaned up. That's great. So, that's really I mean, good to hear. That's that's and, the only positive thing I can really say. <laughs> and do you know how much? I mean, do you know what this is going to cost you? Um, right now, we're guesstimating probably around a quarter of a million dollars in loss for us. Mm. Um, well, Dan, that's really as I said, that's really. Um, adding insult to injury there in uh, your area. Obviously, I don't have to tell you, but we really- we're, trying to, we're trying to do things. We're trying to, you know, reach out. We're reaching out to um, Councilman Bowman. He's the Lovejoy Councilman in Buffalo. We're trying to get with him, work with him and see if there's anything that the city can do or um, the states or, and, and we know the federal, you know, disaster aid was, was signed today. Yeah. So uh, we're hoping that maybe, you know, we can get in on some of that that would help us, you know, speed along this process of getting the store open. Okay, well, we're going to talk to the president of the city council momentarily, so we'll see what, if, if he can help also. Um, Dan, uh, take care. Uh, hope that you're able to put together uh, something positive for the holidays, and we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, this is Buffalo. We're used to hard things, you know. Uh, you know, this is just, you know, it's in our blood. You know, all I can say is, you know, go Bills. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note, uh, thanks so much, and we'll check back in with you. All right. Thank you, thank you so much. Let's go now to Christopher Scanlon. He is the president pro tempore of the Buffalo Common Council. Uh, Mr. Scanlon, thanks for being here. So you just heard what Dan was talking about, a quarter of a million dollars of damage to his store. That's just one local store, obviously, that is suffering in here. Uh, so can you give him any comfort tonight? 
Yeah, Allison, thank you for having me. It's heartbreaking to hear what you and Dan were talking about. Unfortunately, Dan's isn't the only instance of this type of behavior taking place. And any of those individuals who are out there, those opportunists who are damaging, create, creating damage and looting these stores, they need to be held accountable. Um, part of your conversation with Dan, you referenced people who may have been desperate and looking for formula or food or something like that. But that's not what the, all of these people were doing. A lot of them were just out there. They were opportunists and looking to get their hands on anything they could. Yeah. So, Dan, let's talk about what the condition, uh, sorry, um, I, I should say, uh, Chris, let's talk about the condition that um, Erie County and Buffalo are in tonight. So the last we knew, there were 27 deaths in Erie County. And we have um, a graphic that we can put up of what caused those deaths during this storm. So there was there were EMS delays. There were 14 people found outside. And I assume that those were people who were looking for help, who were trying to get to safety. Do you know, is that still what the death toll is? And can you share anything about um, why so many people have died? Yeah, I think when you're talking about the storm that hit here this week, the only word to ad adequately describe it is catastrophic. Um, if we were only to receive the four or five feet of snow, handle it. If we only received a blizzard-like condition or hurricane-force winds, we might have been able to handle it. Only received the freezing, frigid temperatures, we'd be able to handle it. But when you mix it all together, you have a deadly storm. And as you mentioned, unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with. We have more than two dozen confirmed deaths at this point related to the, sto the storm. And unfortunately, you mentioned, I would imagine that number is going to increase as rescue and snow removal operations continue for the, in the coming days. Uh, I, I think you're, a lot of those situations are people who may have been caught in their cars during storms and then seeking shelter um, and other situations like that. Um, there was, as you mentioned, with at, at the top of the broadcast, you talked about how much power outage there was. You had a lot of people without power for a couple of days, um, despite National Grid's best efforts to get the power on back on as quickly as possible. You had people experiencing horrendous situations. So I think all of those are contributing factors. Absolutely. And, and so, Chris, are there still people trapped at this hour? I mean, what are the rescue and recovery operations that are happening right now? Yeah, there's been an ongoing effort. Uh, municipal, county, state um, resources have been pulling together. They're working together to find people who may still be without power. I believe as of 7 o'clock tonight, there were still around 7,000 people in the city of Buffalo without power. They're still trying to turn that power back on. Um, I want to give credit to National Grid and the work they've been doing. The members of the Buffalo um, Department of Public Works and state agencies, county agencies that have been clearing roads to let them get to where they need to go to turn power on. Um, it's been a Herculean effort, and um, they should all be applauded for it. In addition to that, I, I have to mention, obviously, this is a situation where there's tremendous heartache, but there's also been incredible acts of bravery, heroism, and things of that nature. Men and women of the Buffalo Fire Department, Buffalo Police Department have been working for days on end trying to rescue people, putting themselves in harm's way despite this incredible weather. And I just want to recognize the incredible work that they've been doing. And in true Buffalo spirit, despite everything that's been coming to us the couple, last couple of days, you have people throughout the community reaching out to make sure that our first responders are taken care of. You have restaurateurs and other people providing food to them at their stations, at their firehouses, to make sure they're healthy and they can go out and rescue people and take care of people. Well, that is actually really heartwarming. I'm glad that you're 
uh, taking a moment to applaud all of those folks. Obviously, they're angels and we need them. Um, so, uh, Chris Scanlon, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, we know that it's d- a dire situation there tonight and we're thinking of all of you and we really appreciate talking to you. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate it. Okay, meanwhile, there's also new revelations from the January 6th committee and they keep coming. So we're going to bring those to you. And what should lawmakers do now to make sure that our democratic process is never compromised again? The January 6th committee preparing to release more transcripts of witness interviews. Already, their massive report laid out what they say was former President Trump's multi-part plan to overturn the 2020 election. Here's their conclusion. Quote, the central cause of January 6th was one man whom many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. End quote. Let's bring in CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray, Democratic Congressman from New York, Adriano Espaillat, and former Republican Congressman and South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, and former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman. Thanks to all of you for joining me tonight. Sarah, um, I know you've been sifting through um, all of their evidence and their conclusions, but a lot of people tuned out, of course, for Christmas and uh, their holiday week. So just give us some of the headlines. Well, look, you know, there's a a lot to sift through between the report and the transcripts, but even nestled in these transcripts, we're learning new pieces of information. So there was one transcript that referenced this draft press release the White House was crafting in December of 2020 that we had never heard about before. It was right after Bill Barr had publicly done an interview saying there was no widespread fraud. He was then the attorney general. Well, over at the White House, they were crafting a press release that said anybody that thinks there wasn't massive fraud in 2020 election should be fired. Now, they never issued this press release. Eventually, Bill Barr resigned from the administration anyway, but we didn't know about that until we saw this pop up in one of the questions investigators asked. One of the other big findings from their report was just how extensive the pressure campaign that Trump put on state officials was. At one point, they say Trump or his inner circle engaged in at least 200 apparent acts of public or private outreach to overturn state election results. You know, we know the former president was calling election officials. We know he was trying to get states to overturn their election results. But they really sort of try to to bring to you the scope of the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the election. And lastly, we're just learning more in in some of these transcripts from these former White House aides. You know, Kayleigh McEnany, she was the former White House press secretary. She noted that she learned about the Capitol riot and started piecing it together when she was sitting at her desk eating a turkey sandwich. She also told investigators that soon after she was subpoenaed to do her interview with the January 6th committee, she got a call from the former president. She told investigators, I believe shortly after I was subpoenaed, I received a call from President Trump, but I did not answer the call. As I noted to the committee, I have not spoken with him since being subpoenaed. Now, in the committee's report, they noted the former president called a couple of witnesses or tried to reach out to a couple of witnesses, but they didn't name all of the names. Now we're learning from this that Kayleigh McEnany was at least one of the people the former president tried to reach out to before her interview. Okay, that was great. Thanks for laying all that out. So, Harry, that leads us to you. Um, What do you think will get the uh, Department of Justice's attention most? I mean, some of these things we had heard bits and pieces of, but for instance, as Sarah just said, the 200 acts of personal reach out, uh, outreach, I should say, uh, trying to get people to somehow tamper with the election results. And then knowing that Kelly McEnany, I mean, that's, you know, in your speak, 
witness tampering, perhaps, the <laughs> fact that, you know, President Trump was trying to call her. So what do you think will the DOJ be most interested in? So look, it's a huge, huge data dump. And um, there's they'll, they'll be dozens and dozens of trails to follow. But the number one thing, and I think the number one achievement of the January 6th committee is anything bearing on Trump's intent. And that means any time that we learn that he found out, he knew what was happening and he went ahead anyway. So there's quite a lot there to to substantiate that. And then just in general, the the um, conspiracy looks to be both bigger and longer than we had understood. There, there are those 200 contacts. We knew about Raffensperger, but 200, that's really startling. Uh, and of course, the we now know from the report that even before the election, they had decided to on this big lie mm-hmm. strategy. For the Department of Justice, the number one thing is the proof of intent. They've done a pretty darn good job of uh, substantiating it with different witnesses, but that'll be the issue and the and the notion from Trump's guys that oh there's really nothing going here it strikes me as you know whistling in the graveyard there's a there's a wealth of information going to his intent and knowledge okay so governor let's talk about how to stop this from ever happening again you know what lawmakers have learned to try to put in even more guardrails so here's the committee's recommendations from the January 6th report Trump and others involved in the insurrection should be barred from holding office stronger penalties for threatening election officials which we know so many election officials have had to endure. New legislation to enforce House subpoenas in federal court. More oversight over the Capitol Police. Changes to the Electoral Count Reform Act. Combat white nationalists and anti-government groups. Evaluate media companies that radicalize consumers. What do you think will make the biggest difference in stopping this? Uh, you know, I, I think it's a smattering of the above, but I, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet in this equation. And I think we also need to find solace in the fact that ultimately the guardrails that the founding fathers put in place worked. At the end of the day, this didn't go forward. I mean, you had the senior senator from my home state calling folks in Georgia. You had a lot of people making calls and making pressure where they could. But at the end of the day, nothing happened. And, you know, so I I would say let's not overreact. I don't think we want to change the Electoral College. I think there was a real wisdom to what the founding fathers put in place there. I'd be very, very reticent about changing the electoral process. Uh, But as to barring Trump or others from holding office, I'd have no problem with that. I think it will be very difficult legislatively to pull off, though, because of the tug of war that now you know, that sort of marks politics of this day and age. Yeah. Um, Congressman, it's interesting to hear what Governor Sanford is saying, because, yeah, the guardrails held, but a little too close for comfort. What do you think would make the biggest difference? Well, look, Allison, there's so much in the report, over a thousand depositions, over a thousand uh, witnesses were interviewed, over 80, 80 people were subpoenaed. So there's a lot there that could guide us as we move forward. And we've already begun to do that. There was uh, provisions within the uh, omnibus bill that address, you know, the, the count. And so we've already began to take a look at what we can do legislatively to strengthen the guardrails. I think it's, it's important to say that. I think a big debate uh, over the Electoral College yeah. should be had in America, but that's a long-term effort. But I think that there, we should strengthen the guardrails and there's enough there to guide us and, and take preventive action. 
Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of that. Okay, moving on. Frigid temperatures are not stopping migrants coming across the border, and they're not stopping Republican governors from busing them to blue states. So what is the solution here? We're going to talk about that next. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision on Title 42 sometime this week, but that will not solve the crisis at the border. Migrants in El Paso are trying to find shelter as dangerously cold temperatures hit that area. But the influx of migrants is overwhelming officials there. We're also seeing more political stunts. Several buses of migrants were dropped off in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's official residence. Meanwhile, New York City, seeing two more migrant buses arrive on Christmas Day with up to 15 more expected in the next few days. So back with us looking for solutions is Congressman Adriano Espaillat and former Congressman Mark Sanford. We also have CNN national security analyst Juliet Kayyem and pollster and communications strategist Frank Luntz, who has some new polling on how Americans feel about all of this. Great to see all of you. Okay, Juliet, this is, you know, uh, this is a problem. There's 1.6 million asylum applications, okay, at the U.S. immigration courts right now. That is the largest number ever on record, seven times more than there were in the year 2012. So they're overwhelmed. The courts are overwhelmed. Obviously, the officials at the border are overwhelmed. And uh, of course, it's a national security issue because it's hard to keep track of all of this. Right. Exactly. If you cannot control your borders, uh, as, as any nation uh, uh, knows, it is very difficult to to assert that you have some control over your own national security. And we've seen this ac- across Europe during refugee crises, certainly in the United States. So one of the things that in terms of the numbers that you're saying is these uh, standards for asylum are established by Congress. So all you're seeing is people asserting some right to asylum status that is lawfully recognized, and then they have to go through a process. Title 42 essentially closed that down since 2020. About 2.3 people have been uh, have been uh, sent back over the border without what would have normally been their lawful uh, asylum process. So at some stage, this has to be lifted. Title 42 has to be lifted because it's just too hard to to argue anymore that we have a public health crisis and you will see a surge. So the solution that the most Americans are can somewhat agree on this, at least from Frank may tell us new polling is uh, the dreamers are easy in the sense that most Americans want them to get through the undocumented people who are here in this country, uh, that some lawful process for them to become citizens is is a good step forward rather than trying to find them in the interior and then greater border enforcement at this stage uh, and working with our allies down south uh, to try to stop this surge, which is not just from Mexico, as most people believe. It's now Cuba, Venezuela, um, and and countries we haven't seen from since. Okay. And so, before. Frank, Frank, is that what your polling suggests, too, of what Americans want to see? Yes. And it's overwhelming. Democrats, independents, Republicans. If you start with securing the border, because you can't have a country if you cannot have secure borders and that national security, and then you step in, and you give the dreamers the access, the pathway to earn citizenship. And the third aspect is to fix legal immigration because most Americans actually want legal immigration, legal immigration increased. Take those three steps, 79% support. 
including a supermajority of Republicans, independents, and Democrats. And I have a simple statement to Congress right now. Get your act together. The public expects you to fix this. They've been complaining about this now for more than a decade. Don't say the border is secure when it's not. Don't say this is a humane policy when it clearly isn't. And don't play games with human life. The idea that you turn this into a photo op is disgusting. We have a problem. We have a crisis. Fix it and stop playing around with mothers and fathers and particularly children. Well, let me put those tasks to our congressman on the panel right now. And of course, we don't expect you single-handedly to fix it, Congressman. However, I do feel like we've talked about this before, you and I, on this very set. And I feel like we have this circular conversation, which is clearly there's a problem. El Paso is overrun. They're getting 1,500 asylum seekers a day. That's not what the system was set up to be able to withstand. As you say, uh, everyone knows we need comprehensive immigration reform. But before we get there, why can't Congress help, um, as we say, secure the border? Well, we're willing to have a conversation about the border as a Democrat. We try to do that, and we try to talk about uh, the dreamers in this past omnibus bill. And the feeds that are tied to the, the dreamers that in actuality keep the program moving forward were gutted by the other side of the aisle. I don't want to make this a one side of the aisle versus other. But again, this issue, even of the dreamers, which will say was polls, they poll over 80 people per- want to help. The they want to help. Them. It's weaponized on a regular yeah. basis. And folks don't really want to talk about something that I think is, is so what? important. There is a crisis of democracy in the Americas. Where are these folks coming from? They're coming from Venezuela. They're coming from Cuba. Yeah. We just have boats landed in Florida from Haiti. There's a crisis of democracy in the Americas, and no one wants to talk well, about, we that. To do about that. Well, you know, we are the leader of the Americas, and we should uh, take take a deep dive and see what it is that those countries need help with. Uh, you know, a mom will walk 2,000 miles with their child. Why are they doing that? Nobody wants to leave their homeland. Nobody wants to leave their family behind. Yeah, but I'm not sure how much the U.S. can do in these authorit- uh, authoritarian countries to help with, you know, humanitarian causes there if the leaders there don't want us to. Well, you know, things have spin out of control and out of, out of our sort of like ability to impact them. But we must take a step forward. Um, governor, I want to ask, what do you think of places, the governors in places like Texas sending um, migrants to, you know, Massachusetts or Manhattan? Um, do you think that that's effective? Is it a political stunt? What are your thoughts on that? Whether it proves effective, we'll see. But I mean, it, it's certainly a blunt, it, it, you know, a, a blunt political instrument. Uh, I don't see it as a stunt, but I see it as a way of saying we're desperate down here. We've got to have something done. And can we make it real to you? And too often, that's not the case in politics. People see what's right around them, and that's about it. And it's a way of bringing it right yeah, no, to America's backyard. I mean, yeah. it's. It's simply a way of trying to make it real. We have a crisis. And what's crazy is the degree to which this is politicized. I mean, there, there's border funding indirectly from the United States Congress for Poland against Belarus, same in Syria. And yet we have this, you know, uh, a, a border wall, if you will, 
built against the idea of doing anything tied to securing our own border first before other political activities come. And, but, and know, what would that look like? Suing the governor of Arizona, for instance, yeah. on but, building his own border wall. But governor, I mean, I'm just looking for solutions. What would that look like? Secure. We all, we all want the border secured. So what are we not doing? What would that look <laughs> like to you? Well, the first thing is you'd overturn what Biden has done in allowing asylum in the United States as opposed to in Mexico. I think, well, yeah, again, I'm not a Trump fan, as has been well chronicled, but what they did in saying you're going to have asylum while you're waiting for asylum in Mexico. Title 42, is, which is what is the Supreme the Court is States debating right now. Is completely, what's that? That's Title 42. I mean, that's what the Supreme Court is going to be deciding on this week. Right. But that, that's what turned the spigot on. If you look at really the delta in terms of immigration, it's largely tied to, to that change in, in the way that we approach asylum seekers. Juliet, is that true? Is that because of Title 42 or is it because of what's going on in Venezuela and Cuba, as the congressman said? It's really it's so the history of immigration and immigration policy, I think, um, results in in, in one um, decisive conclusion, which is the, the pull and push of America uh, is sometimes less than the pull and push of what's happening uh, in the Americas. In other words, our, our immigration policies have been harsh, they've been less harsh, they've been cruel, they've been less cruel. And for the most part, you just see these waves of migration that are related to what's happening in Cuba or Venezuela or wherever else. So everyone knows that the solution is about the Americans. Why do people, Americas, excuse me, why do people want to come here? Then, as Frank was making clear, you want a lawful immigration process, which we have. In, for example, the Mexican border, you've got millions of people crossing that border uh, every month, right? So you have to have a lawful system that gets that flow going because both countries uh, thrive on it. And then you have to have a new humane process for people that are coming over. So the idea that, that you know, that, that we're going to, I guess two things. One is the idea that we're going to resolve the failure of comprehensive immigration reform, which consistently had falls on the GOP. It's just that they just don't want to do it because their base doesn't want it to happen, uh, including with the dreamers. Right. That failure uh, means that we are driving our immigration policy through public yeah. health law, through Title 42, which is ridiculous. Right, so that's, that's a COVID sort of policy. Where we are yeah, right I hear now. what you're saying. Go ahead, go ahead, Governor. Yeah, I, I don't think that's fair. I mean, the reality is there's guilt on both sides here. The fact is we had the Becerra program from 1946 to 1964. It was a guest worker program with Mexicans coming up and going home. It worked quite well. But the fact is Democrats feared the labor unions and were part of shutting it mm -hmm. down and, and keeping it down. We could have a guest worker program tomorrow on the Republican side that would, again, ease a lot of what's going on. But again, Democrats don't want that. So I think there's guilt on both sides and we can play the blame game. But yep. at the end of the day, a first start would change maybe changing the amnesty laws. Okay, go ahead, Frank. And, if, and um, the polling data shows that a majority of Republicans and independents and Democrats support the DREAM Act. That in fact, that's not the case. Maybe the loudest people are complaining. Hmm. But we have now come to the conclusion that children who are brought here through no fault of their own have the ability to earn citizenship by following a certain set of procedures and the American people, including the Republican Party, want that. Okay. Just want to correct the record there. Okay, I really appreciate that. Let's see what the new Congress does uh, next week. Thank you all very much for this conversation. Nothing. Okay, <laughs> and that side comment. Um, all right, now, did you know that the average senator is 64.3 years old?
This is the oldest Senate in U.S. history. So what will it take to get younger people want to be involved in leadership in this country? Frank Luntz has some ideas, and we're going to talk about it next. When will we see a new generation of leaders in this country? Well, Frank Luntz was just in Africa for 10 days, teaching students from 40 different countries at the African Leadership University. And he says there's a lot to be hopeful about, and he joins us again now. So Frank, what are you hopeful about after this experience? Well, there's not much to be hopeful here, quite frankly. And I do teach in a number of universities. I have tremendous faith in what's happening over there. And the reason why is because they have so little and they figured out a way to make it worth so much. And in here we have so much, we don't seem to appreciate it. They realize that they're leaders, that they need to hold them accountable. And that corruption destroys any faith they have in a better future. They realize that they need to learn ideas and they need to work together with people that they otherwise might disagree with. And what's most powerful for me about the African Leadership University is that you've got countries that are at war with each other, or almost at war, and yet these students are working together, living together, thriving together. And it's a lesson for America that we can put aside our differences, we can put aside our disagreements for the greater good, to do something positive, not just for us, but for others, and not just now, but for the future. I loved it, and it gave me some hope for the future. And so where do we start? And also, Frank, I mean, look, obviously everybody wants a youth infusion into leadership. As we just said, this is the oldest Senate ever in U.S. history. Um, president Biden is the oldest president. But with age comes experience. And so that's a benefit, right? It is. But the average age of the United States senator is deceased. <laughs> we need to give younger people the opportunity to come into the workforce, to come and take up leadership positions, but they need to be trained. They need to be educated. They need a lot, they have a lot to learn, but they have a lot to give. And at the African Leadership University, what makes it special is that every student is required to succeed on their own. It's self-directed learning. So they have the chance to really get inside some of these very difficult issues. And I applaud the Biden administration for bringing the African leaders here to Washington, DC, but we need to raise the bar. We need to ask more of them. We are spending billions of dollars in aid. Where's the accountability? We are investing so much time and treasure. Where are the results? These students, they're owed the same kind of future that we have. We can do it on an individual basis. I want the entire global community, regardless of partisanship, regardless of ideology, to see it in a very simple way, that we really are our brother's keepers, our sister's keepers, and that we have to do more to help people because in the end, we'll all rise together or we will all fail together. Mm. It's inspiring, Frank. And we really do obviously want our best and our brightest young people to get involved in public service and in leadership. Um, so let's hope that some of that that you just learned translates over here to the U.S. Uh, Frank, great to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Okay, so imagine you're at the airport. You're waiting for your flight to board when the dreaded cancellation blares over the speakers. What do you do? Do you go home? Not our next guests. They decided to band together and carpool 20 hours to their destination with total strangers across multiple states through a snowstorm. 
They're here to tell us about it next. When brutal winter weather upends your travel plans right before Christmas, you've got to get creative. And that's exactly what my next guests did. The foursome were perfect strangers when their flight was canceled on Thursday at Tampa International Airport. Today, they're bonded for life after a long and unexpected road trip together to Cleveland. And they documented their adventure on TikTok. Here's just a piece of that. Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. (laughs) They look like they're having too much fun. The posts have gotten millions of views in four days. And the four road trippers are here with us tonight. Bridget Schuster, Greg Henry, Shobi Maynard, and Abby Radcliffe. Welcome to all of you guys. It's great to see you. Shobi, how did this happen that you were all strangers and you decided, yeah, let's rent a car and drive 20 hours together? Oh, wow. Well, so after our flight got canceled, um, we were trying to figure out what to do exactly and how we're supposed to all work together. Um, And I don't know whose idea it was, but we were just trying to work together. And eventually, Greg actually was like, hey, we should go ahead and rent a car. And he got that already. And then we did it. And we just, I don't know, honestly, we just sent it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Abby, was there any moment where you thought, hmm, getting into a car with two guys that I don't know at all and another woman and driving for 20 hours, maybe this isn't wise? Definitely. There's definitely that moment of hesitation where you're like, okay, is this the best idea? Is this the best choice? And after a lot of conversation and a lot of like thinking through, okay, what are our other options and that sort of thing, we just all decided to go for it. But there's definitely a lot of thought that goes into a decision like this. So Greg, um, it's not as if this drive was easy. I mean, 20 hours in a car with strangers, number one, is probably never easy. But there were dicey moments. You were driving through a snowstorm. I mean, it was dangerous. We have some, you guys took video of it and you posted it on TikTok. And there are definitely moments that are, you know, as you're driving, uh, it's, I mean, it's not whiteout conditions, but was it, was the driving hazardous at any time? Oh, definitely. And it definitely was to our advantage that we went so late. Like we were we were driving, you know, 3 a.m. So there's hardly any traffic. If there were traffic, that definitely would have slowed us down a lot more. But being from Ohio, honestly, like it wasn't going to stop me. Like I've driven through some pretty bad snowstorms. <laughs> but for people down south, like you guys are nuts. <laughs> Bridget, um, how did you decide who, who how did you all decide who was going to drive? And did anybody sleep during these 20 hours? <laughs> Um, we all kind of just took turns driving. Uh, we each had, I would say, pretty equal shifts. And it was just, if you felt like driving, you know, you could just be like, all right, I'll drive next. And um, that's kind of how it went. But nobody slept throughout the whole journey. Um, it was, I don't think anyone um, slept at all. So we were definitely pretty exhausted when we got back. But I think, you know, I think we all feel like it was pretty well worth it. (laughs) So Shobi, what's the lesson here for everyone watching? Man, um, Allison, the lesson would definitely be, I don't know, just making sure that we don't see the bad in people all the time. Um, I think a lot of times people can just see the bad. And for us, we automatically had that connection, it seemed like, because we had that desperate time of like, almost like we need to go back home to to visit our families. So definitely easy to do. 
in like desperate time, but definitely just trust people more. Um, maybe give them a chance, you know, maybe try not to just say, oh, that's not, that's not good. I don't know. So. <laughs> uh, and Abby, are you guys going to see each other again? Yes. Every Christmas we're making this a yearly <laughs> tradition. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, I'm sure that. I'm You're sure we'll drive 20 hours together every Christmas. No, of course not. So yes, we would love to stay connected and we've got like a group chat going, but if we see each other in person again, that would be lovely. That's awesome. Well, you guys, um, it's great to see all of you. I'm so glad that it worked out. That is a nice lesson for everybody that you can rely on the kindness of strangers. Um, so Bridget, Greg, Shobi, Abby, um, have a great rest of your holidays. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, the travel woes are not over, sadly. As of this evening, Southwest Airlines has canceled at least 70% of their flights, and they're not done. So they're not the only airline, of course, canceling flights. Stay with us. We'll give you an update. The massive winter storm that swept across the country over Christmas is still causing havoc tonight. At least 49 people were killed in the storm. And there's still roughly four feet of snow in the Buffalo region. And thousands of flights are still getting canceled, leaving travelers stranded. So we want to bring in now CNN's Lucy, Lucy Kavanoff. She's live for us in Denver. What's the situation, Lucy? Well, Allison, this is what not a lot of fun looks like. Denver Airport, unfortunately, leading the nation in terms of flight delays and cancellations. More than 500 flights delayed, more than 468 flights canceled, 75 percent of those coming from southwest. And that is unfortunately not Denver alone. Those numbers reverberating, those delays reverberating across the nation, impacting travel all across the country. I wasn't anticipating a nightmare, but it became a nightmare. It did. Christmas may be over, but for thousands of passengers, the travel nightmare goes on. They canceled our flight, and they said they can't help us. So we don't know what to do. Southwest Airlines at the top of the list for cancellations. The airline's ticketing counter at Baltimore's BWI Airport, a zoo. Denver Airport's lines for the Southwest ticket counter, even longer. We had to wait in a line that was four hours, and we're still in line. And nobody's giving us any direction on what line to get in. It's, it's a total, you know what, show here. And for those trying to call to rebook, well, good luck getting through. Calling Southwest, calling uh, the airlines, they're nowhere to be found. I actually got hung up on multiple times. The problem is that Southwest, they don't give any answer. Um, they don't answer the phone. There's no option to rebook anything online. Oh, I've also been on hold for... Five hours and 43 minutes. Passenger Jason Freed shows us the proof. In a statement to CNN, Southwest Airlines said it is experiencing disruptions across our network as a result of the winter storm's lingering effects on the totality of our operation. In the wake of dangerously cold temperatures and winter weather across the nation, airlines canceling thousands of flights on Monday. They were scheduled to fly out on Saturday and uh, Canceled flight after canceled flight till this morning. Now it's standby, hoping they'll get on to get home. Thousands more flights delayed. Just delay, 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 rinse and repeat. At airports across the nation, long lines, chaos, frustrated passengers and luggage piling up. 
there's a lack of communication. There's no transparency. There's no honesty. No I don't know what's going on. There's no staff. No staff either, yeah. It's okay if there's no staff. We just want them to be honest with us, and I could just go home. But we can't go home because we don't know where our luggage is. Is it here in Atlanta? Is it in Chicago? We have no idea. Some passengers choosing to look at the bright side. It was like super stressful, but I mean, just happy that I got to see my family for Christmas. And hey, I'm off this week, so I'll be good. Others finding creative solutions for their journeys home. Instead of waiting on a maybe flight and paying through my proverbial nose for a rental car, if I'm able to get one, call a friend of mine. I'm driving a car rental cargo van down to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Now, Southwest did issue an apology statement pointing to what they described as extreme winter weather, although I should point out that here in Denver, we had a high of about 52 degrees, so not extremely extreme here in Colorado, at least. Uh, and they did apologize for these delays. But again, Allison, that is cold comfort for the hundreds, if not thousands of Americans who are stranded all across the nation, unable to get home. Allison? Yeah, truly cold comfort. Lucy, thank you very much for being there for us. So also... Uh, Southwest says that it's going to help stranded customers, but we'll see about that. All right, let's also find out when this frigid weather ends. Let's get to meteorologist Tom Sater in the Weather Center. Tom. Allison, even though the snow is winding down somewhat, we still have this multifaceted storm. The cold is still with us, and it's absolutely brutal as wind chills are still in the single digits in Buffalo, well below zero, Minneapolis and Des Moines. But now we've got other problems coming, and that is a massive warm-up. As fast as the temperatures fell and froze everything, they're going to warm up and thaw, and that's going to lead to other issues. But first, let's talk about the only warning we have left is the Watertown area and surrounding counties. So the wind's still coming in on Lake Ontario, depositing more snow, several more inches. Now for Buffalo, it's just about over with. In fact, the radar is showing us some very good news. But again, record-breaking, and it was mainly the winds. They can handle the snow. Just last month, they had over 36 inches, and many areas were breaking records with the amount of snow just last month, and here they are doing it again. But with those winds and the bitter cold. It was just a horrific story. Heavier snowfall actually down in areas of around Paducah, icy roads in central Tennessee, northern Mississippi and Alabama. Overall, though, when you look at the amount of snow that has fallen, it wasn't just for us, our neighbors to the north and Ontario as well. But when all this starts to melt, it's going to create a world of problems. And we're not just talking about pipes bursting, and that's going to happen with this massive warm-up. But we're going to have rain moving in on top of all this heavy snow. Ice is going to jam up all of the drainage spots. And when you look at next week, we're not only above normal, we're well above normal. So again, this is going to uh, give us a world of problems. Several states already seeing main water main breaks, such as Memphis, parts of uh, uh, the Carolinas as well. But when you have 49, and this will go up to 50, and all that snow starts to melt, we've got problems. Look at Buffalo, even with snow, are changing the, the rainfall, that is, for Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. The problems are not over with just yet. Okay, Tom, thank you for all of that. So this brutal winter weather has a lot of us thinking about what we need to know to save ourselves and our loved ones if we get stranded somehow in the next monster storm. We've got an expert here tonight. Mark Wienert is the owner and lead instructor of Life Song Wilderness Adventures. He joins us now. Mark, thanks so much for being here. You know, 49 people as of tonight have died across the country because of these uh, massive snowstorms and 27 alone in Erie County, that's where Buffalo is. And many of those, it turns out, were trapped in their cars and got frozen. I mean, either they got trapped in 
the snow and couldn't drive any further. Maybe they ran out of gas. So what could have prevented that? Hi. Yeah. Well, those are always hard um, questions. Um, don't drive. <laughs> That's the the number one, right? Uh, yeah. Blizzard conditions you can't see. It's icy. Um, I know a lot of people uh, had to leave to help uh, relatives or friends to, to get through elderly people um, or just commute or on vacation. Um, we kind of have this idea that we're we can do anything and nature usually has a way of humbling. And when you're stuck and cars are terrible to stay warm in, they're horrible. Um, you can run your heater. Go ahead. Yeah. I want to know about that because here's what I would think is that you're stuck in a snowbank, and you can run your heater until you run out of gas. But I mean, some people were, were trapped for hours and hours. What else, what other tips do you have? What do we need to carry in our cars with us? Well, yeah, in the car, you should only run your heater for about a, uh, about 40 minutes at a time, turn it off, and then turn it back on so you can save gas. Um, you want to make sure that your, your uh, exhaust pipe is clear um, on the car because you can get carbon monoxide is really a big problem. Crack your window when you're doing that. Um, and so, yeah, you want to have, oh, gosh, extra clothes. Um, Hold on, Mark. Let me, let me stop you right there because we have we have actually yeah. a graphic of tips, which I think is really helpful. So obviously you should okay. have your cell phone with you, which is, it, of course, we all know, uh, God willing, you have your cell phone. Don't leave your vehicle, <laughs> you say, unless help is in sight. That's interesting because I think a lot of people uh, that were killed did leave thinking that that either they're out of gas or their car is stranded, so they need to walk for help. But you're saying don't do that? Right. So it depends on the weather. Like if you have a whiteout and if your audience knows what that means is that visibility can be zero. And so if you're trying to walk for help and you're leaving your vehicle, what are you wearing? Um, where are you going? What can you see? So you're better, uh, better to stay in place in your vehicle. And Mark, uh, Mark, what about when you say open window slightly? Why am I opening my window if it's freezing out? Well, so you get air into the vehicle. So if you're running your heater um, and you could get exhaust fumes into your car for and uh, suffer with carbon monoxide poisoning, which actually does kill a lot of people. Mm. You also say uh, signal for help by turning on your flashers, raising the hood, tie a bright colored cloth to the, your, your antenna to signal to people that you're in distress. Now let's talk about what you should just carry in your car at all times, because the list is longer than I would have thought. So here's the list. One gallon of drinking water, a charged cell phone, yes, of course, a flashlight and extra batteries, hand warmers. I mean, those are easy. Everybody really should have like hand warmers in their car. They're so uh, you know easy to get now. Blankets, extra clothing, large garbage bags. Why do we need those? Yeah, garbage bags are great because they're um, lightweight, and you can use them to wrap around your shoes. So let's say you have some tennis shoes on and you want to go out and check your exhaust pipe. If you throw those around your feet and tie them on, you're going to keep your shoes pretty dry and your socks. And that's the worst you could do would be to get chilled and cold. You also say matches. What's that for? Well, matches are always just good to have. You just never know when you could use them outside. Um, if the weather permits, you could build a warming fire if you're going to be there for several days outside the vehicle, <laughs> not inside the vehicle. 
<laughs> Thank you for clarifying for me. You can see that you're not dealing with a survivalist here. Um, so uh, also you said, should you really be carrying a bag of cat litter in your car at all times and why? Well, it's an attraction device. So maybe today you've seen where people are pushing vehicles by hand, trying to get them unstuck or the tires are spinning. If you have a little cat litter, you can toss that under your front wheel drive tires or your rear tires to gain traction. Well, Mark, thanks for all of these tips. I mean, I am going to go home and put these hand warmers in my car. Uh, And the garbage bags are a great idea and matches, but I'll remember not to light them in my car for a fire. Uh, Mark Wiener, thanks so much for all the tips. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Thank you. Thank you. Thousands of people in Washington state were without electricity on Christmas Day after power substations were again vandalized. This comes on the heels of similar attacks on energy infrastructure around the country. So up next, the vulnerability of the nation's power grid and why we're seeing so many of these attacks. Nearly 14,000 people spent Christmas Day in the dark in Washington state, and that's because four separate power substations were vandalized. This comes weeks after a similar attack in North Carolina that left thousands of people without power. In both instances, the police have made no arrests and have no suspects that we're aware of. CNN's Josh Campbell has the latest. Four power substations in Washington state vandalized on Christmas Day knocking out power for thousands and impacting holiday plans for many. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department says deputies found evidence of forced entry and damage at all four stations. Nothing was stolen and there are no suspects at this time. There's a good possibility they are related. Um, We're going to be investigating to see if this was coordinated by a specific group of people. Roughly 14,000 customers were impacted. This after vandalism and deliberate damage were reported last month at substations in southern Washington and Oregon. And a similar incident just weeks ago at power substations in Moore County, North Carolina, where about 40,000 customers were left in the dark for days, with temperatures dipping into the 40s. Schools and businesses were forced to close until power was restored. No motive has been announced and no arrests have been made in those attacks. We are aware of those things and we're going to see if any of this stuff is related to that. The FBI issued a bulletin last month to private industry warning of threats to electricity infrastructure by individuals espousing racially or ethnically motivated extremist ideology to, quote, create civil disorder and inspire further violence. The potential attacks on critical infrastructure are being promoted by the right wing. They see it as a way to show disruption, to show power. They also view it as a way to start a race war. December 25th attack that's hitting three or four substations is being done to make a statement. We don't know what the motives are or anything at this time, but again, just a really terrible way to welcome everybody to Christmas morning. Amanda Clark is one customer who had a rude awakening. We woke up at 5.30 and the power was out. She says she had holiday party plans for 12 people at her home, but with no power, she had to cancel. Scary in our small little community that something like that would happen. Josh Campbell, CNN, Los Angeles. 
Josh, thank you very much. Joining me now is Juliet Kayyem, CNN National Security Analyst and former Department of Homeland Security official, also former Congressman Charlie Dent, who served on the House Homeland Security Committee. Thanks to both of you for being here. Juliet, that really got my attention, what you just said. What do you mean start a race war? Why would they be attacking power substations? So there's a there's a theory in the right wing in the in the sort of social media milieu the the atmosphere the environment that they live in and it, it's it's beginning to focus or in the last year or so to focus on critical infrastructure but it's not simply we want to be disruptive we want to show that we can pull these things off we're just going to be chaos for chaos's sake part of the literature supports these kinds of attacks because there's a belief that in the darkness right? Uh, uh, human nature is as it as we as they believe it to be, and there'll be race wars. This is what they believe so that the darkness, you know, in terms of going after energy facilities, is that that then will begin the silver war that they have been demanding or clamoring for 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 years now. So we don't know specifically whether this case is related to that. But one of the reasons why there's been a number of Department of Homeland Security and FBI bulletins in the last couple of months is because that chatter is has been consistent and much louder. That's really sinister. So, Charlie, when you were on the House Homeland Security Committee, how big of a concern was this and how big is it for you now? Well, this was a concern when I was on the committee back from like 2005 to 2010. Uh, at that time, after 9-11, we were very concerned about the electric infrastructure, particularly nuclear power plants. And those plants, frankly, were pretty hard targets. They were not particularly vulnerable, vulnerable, but the public was concerned about them. And I thought we spent too much time on nuclear plants and should have been focusing more on this threat, which we are aware of, that these, uh, uh, that these power stations that have these transformers were very vulnerable to these types of sniper uh, rifle attacks, that somebody who was a good shot could cause a lot of damage. This would be a very disruptive act. Uh, and uh, frankly, um, you know, we need to harden those targets more than we have, you know, maybe build walls or you can build, you know, non, uh, some non-transparent fencing around those to make it more difficult. But we were aware this was a problem and that this could cause enormous issues because you can't always replace a transformer overnight. It takes time, I mean, to, to build those things or even to repair them. So this can be a really a, a, a very big problem for this country going forward. These are going to be uh, targets because there are many of these power substations throughout the country that are vulnerable. Juliet, there's been a spate of these attacks. And so are these, I mean, do you think that these are coordinated? Are these, they don't feel like isolated incidents. Are these copycat incidents or is there something more nefarious going on? So we, so honestly, Allison, we don't know yet. I mean, it is surprising. I think that the North Carolina case has not uh, been solved yet. We don't know if they have suspects that they're, that they think they've identified a lot of these, a lot of these um, uh, facilities, as Charlie was saying, um, are not fortified. They're exposed. They're next to highways. They are, and they're small. I mean, these are, these are communities are impacted, of course, but the, the facilities themselves are, are, it's not like the Hoover Dam or, or a nuclear facility. These are small pieces of infrastructure. So, uh, but uh, because of what we call the threat environment, in other words, as you go into these investigations, investigators will not be 
blind to the to the to the idea that there is a, a sort of right wing or extremism element that is pushing uh, its followers to go after critical infrastructure. And so you'd want to see what the ties are, uh, whether they focus on North Carolina or 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 uh, or Washington or wherever else. That would be your leading theory at this stage, because it hasn't been that common until uh, until the chatter picked up. But Charlie, I mean, given that you knew or were concerned about this in 2005 and Juliet saying that online there are all these threats, are you surprised that they don't have any suspects? Aren't there cameras around some of these things? Well, back in 2013 at the uh, San Jose uh, substation, I don't think they've ever made any arrests. They may have cameras, uh, but many of these substations are in some rural areas. You know, and, and they're like Juliet said, they're, they're rather small. Uh, and, you know, so you could be hanging out from a pretty far distance taking shots at these things. And even if there were cameras, they might not be if you have a, you know, a long, you know, one of these powerful rifles, you can shoot from a distance. And if you're a good shot, you know, you can cause problems. So this is not so easy. I think that the better answer to this is rather than trying to figure out how, who, who did it is to start fortifying these things. You know, and again, these are not big facilities. So you, you can build fences that are not transparent and you can also perhaps build walls around them, make it hard for people to take shots at them. We know what the problem is. Let's let's deal with it. Let's make them hard targets. And Julia, what about you? I mean, the fact that you're saying that online they've been telegraphing this stuff. Why is it so hard to find suspects? Uh, it, it, it's part of it is the darkness. Part of it is these, not all these facilities are uh, in urban areas where the, where there might be uh, uh, people that see them do it. These are these are you know on roads in which someone can stop, especially if someone knows the facility and simply uh, uh, shoot it out. So these are. These are significant investigations to solve at this stage, though, and I'm glad that the FBI is involved uh, with the two with with all these cases. In fact, even the old California one. And the reason why is there's only some very high profile arrests to show that law enforcement can break these cases will at least stop uh, or at least try to deter some people from doing Uh, this again, the more that these cases remain unsolved, the more oxygen it gives to the fire of the hate and the and the right wing uh, elements that we see online to believe that there would be no no consequences for what they do. So uh, so we we hope that there will be arrest relatively soon. Okay, Charlie, Juliet, thanks for all the information. Great to talk to you. Okay, just ahead, an incoming Republican congressman admits he lied about his resume. He says he's not a criminal. But there's more to this story. Should he be allowed to keep his seat in the next Congress? We'll tell you what he's saying now tonight. Tonight, incoming Republican Congressman George Santos is admitting that he lied on his resume about his education, about his work history and his personal life. Here's what he just said on WABC radio. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. And I'm not going to make excuses for this, but a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or ingrandiate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I want to make sure that if I disappointed anyone by resume embellishment, I'm sorry. Hmm. Let's bring in special correspondent for Vanity Fair, Molly Jean-Fast. Julia Kayyem is back with us, as is Charlie Dent. Also joining us is Nina Turner, co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. Great to have all of you. Molly, 
Uh, he says, I'm not a fraud. He kind of is a fraud, actually, because when you lie to this degree, let's just go through his claims. Uh, right now, we have a graphic to show everyone. Um, he said he worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Nope. Mm-hmm. No, he didn't. He did not graduate from any college, mm-hmm. but said that he had gra- uh, degrees from two different universities, including NYU. He uh, falsely claimed to be Jewish and have grandparents who survived the Holocaust. Not true. Mm-hmm. And he claimed to have run a nonprofit to rescue animals, but the organization does not exist. That's a little more than resume embellishment. Yeah, he's the talented Mr. Soros, the store, uh, Santos, the talented Mr. Santos. I mean, I think it, it you know, it's, this is really a very, um, this is a sort of shocking level of, this is not embellishment, these are lies. And it's funny when he says, I'm not a fraud, because he really is a fraud. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know how else you describe that level of untruths. Uh, Nina, what are voters to do about this? He's about to be sworn in. Yeah, Allison, he's a liar, just a straight up liar. I mean, they need to do a recall on him. The GOP should call him out. I mean, imagine if I said on my, you know, as I was running for office, I was the first black woman to, to hit the moon. I went on the moon, you know, I, hey, I was just embellishing. It's not a crime. Right. He's right. It's not a crime, but he is a liar. He deceived the people who voted for him for his own gain. And if he had any dignity, he would just step down. But he doesn't because he's power hungry and they need to launch a recall on him. Charlie, when you were in Congress, if you had a colleague who was showing up who had won with completely false credentials, what are the people in Congress supposed to do about him now? Well, th- this this man, uh, uh, he's going to become a real embarrassment and distraction. He'll become radioactive among many of his colleagues. He will come under tremendous pressure uh, to resign. He, of course, will be primary in all likelihood. I'm sure he'll be in primary in New York. Uh, not to mention that Democrats will elevate this seat to the top, probably their top target for 2024. So this guy's going to have really problems walking in the door. Now, they're not going to get this guy to resign until after he votes for speaker, I suspect. But like I said, he may not resign, but the pr- pressure on him will be very, very strong. And I dealt with these cases when I was chair of the ethics committee. When we had distractions and embarrassments. We wanted them to go away because uh, I'll tell you, they don't want they don't. One thing Congress doesn't like to do is to set precedents with respect to behavior of candidates like this one who obviously fabricated his resume. You know, you really don't want to have to set a precedent about how to deal with folks like this. It's best just to get him to resign, get him out of the House. That way you don't have to deal with it. Juliet, he can't be trusted yeah. to do anything. I mean, it, it will be hard to believe anything he says. If you're gonna, if you're right. willing to lie about your grandparents having been in the Holocaust, what aren't you willing to lie about? Yeah. No, he's got. It is exactly. Right. These aren't just any lies. I mean, you know, whether he embellishes that he worked at Goldman Sachs. I mean, some of the significant lies are ones that sort of touch on some of the greatest tragedies of our of the last century, certainly, and and a, and a horror this century. Uh, both the Holocaust to to sort of surround yourself with that is a is a form of, of delusion and, and crazy that's that's not like oh I got a master's degree at some university. Mm-hmm. This is someone who is getting a high off of other people's tragedy. And he does it again when he says that he lost some employees at the Pulse nightclub. That strikes me as someone who's um, who's um, fixated on 
on other people's tragedy, which I think for the for uh, uh, the, the the caucus and then certainly for voters later really is a tell. Uh, this is not just you know I'm richer than you think I am or you know whatever Trump does or whoever. Th- these are these are really bizarre ones in terms of the tragedy of others and him wanting to to be in that light, so to speak, and to and to gain and to gain sympathy for, uh, by others people's tragedy. That's a that's a that's 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 sick. That's not just delusional. That's just sick. Yeah. CNN is still checking that one out. We're still investigating it to make sure that he didn't have four employees that died in the Pulse nightclub. That seems unlikely, particularly given his track record of not telling the truth. But we're still investigating that. But also, it just goes to show. Molly, just horrible judgment. He doesn't think that people can check to find out if he ever worked at Citigroup or somebody at Citigroup might say he never worked there. I mean, this shows some level of, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to diagnose personality disorder or something, but something more than just embellishing. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something really off here. I would also say that I think some of the failure here is the state Democratic chair of New York State. This was a very bad election cycle for Democrats in New York State. And this candidate, you know, had there been a little more pay- attention paid, could have, you know, didn't necessarily need to have, you know, could have been knocked out. Uh, Nina, what were you saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to blame the, the Democrats for this man running. He ran, he's a Republican and he just lied and deceived the people for his own gain. This is strictly lies at his feet. The man has a problem. I do agree. I think he does have some sort of problem. And now that problem becomes the voters' problem. And to the point about they're going to wait until he votes for leadership, what kind of integrity is that? They should run him out of there right now and, you know, do a recall on him. But to wait for him to vote for leadership definitely shows the flaws even with the GOP, if that's the case. For sure. But Nina, um, who who could have sussed this out? Whose fault? I mean, obviously it's his fault. But who could have figured this out before he was elected? From a political from political. I get the point that the person running against him could have laid this to bear, right? They could have said to the public, this man is a fraud. He lied about this and this and this. Yes, the Democrats could have done that, but the GOP should have did some betting on this dude too. But you know what? Because that's what each party does. Usually they bet their candidates a little bit. So there was no betting on the GOP side. So all I'm saying is that you're not going to lay this at the feet of the Democrats. The Republicans brought this dude to power. And so they have an obligation to the voters, to the Republican voters and to the Democrats that he will serve too. now that he is a a congressman elect. They have a duty to the voters to clean up the mess that they made. Yeah, go ahead, Molly. Um, I would just say that I think that the the opponent did not get a great amount of support from the Democratic Party in this race and that it wasn't it might that, that had it gotten more attention, that some of this could have come out earlier. And I think that there have been a lot of Democrats in New York who have said that it might be time for Jay Jacobs, who was appointed by Cuomo, who is a Cuomo holdover uh, and who did not have a very good cycle, that this might be yet another sign that it's time for Jay Jacobs to go. Um, Charlie, did the Republicans fail here? Well, yeah, look, there are a lot of lousy candidates who ran this cycle. I mean, you know, I mean, we talk about vetting all we want, but I saw some horrible candidates who would have been disqualified for some of the things they said and did, and they were well known. But this guy, why didn't, I mean, seriously, the Democrats, why didn't they do better opposition research? They, they must have had a file on this guy. Why oh, didn't they cool. dump it out there? I mean, I just, I'm sorry. You know, at some point, you know, we, we spend a lot of money on opposition research. We investigate and we, you know, we look into the backgrounds of our, uh, of our opponents, 
to see if there are issues like this. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't hear any of this stuff before the election. Now, again, this is this this man's fault. He is yeah. responsible for his own misconduct. Again, this is it doesn't appear to be it appears to be non-criminal conduct. But this is the kind of stuff that the campaign committees should have been all over and this should have been revealed and they should have smashed him with ads on this for the whole campaign. I'll just read you a couple more of what he just said tonight in explaining how he lied. Well, he doesn't say he lied. Okay, so this is from the New York Post about his religion. He says, I never claimed to be Jewish. I'm Catholic. Because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background, I said I was Jew-ish. <laughs> That's okay. There's, there's, there's that. I have another one for you. He says, um, also to the New York Post, I didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. Uh, he could resign. I mean, if he's really embarrassed, he should resign. I mean, that's what you would do if you're really embarrassed. You'd apologize and resign. Yeah, I guess that's exactly right. You know, I yeah. don't think that's, that that's what he's playing. No, to do. that's right. That's right. Yeah, but I mean, as yeah, you, that's see, exactly he's right. He's going to come under pressure. No shame. Mark oh, wait, sorry, Charlie. What'd you the say? Man has no shame. Yeah, I hear you. He's going to come under real pressure to resign, and you're, 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 I think Nina might be right. A lot of these folks don't have any shame anymore. Uh, but I'm, believe me, I dealt with cases of non-criminal conduct of members of Congress who were forced to resign. Remember the kissing congressman? He resigned. Uh, others, the marital, marital infidelity. There was one case of drug use. Well, that was actually criminal. But most of the time, there were you know, what would be non-criminal or minor offenses, and they were forced out because the leadership did not want to deal with this. They didn't want to start the new Congress off talking about uh, talking about this guy and his uh, embe- not embellishments, his fabrications of a resume. Yeah, never want to do it. I he like- lied, Allison. Just just one other quick point. I mean, yeah. the man lied, so let's just put it, it ain't embellishment. It's not fabrication. He is a pathological liar. But more importantly, I just want to center for a moment the voters that he deceived, not the leadership of the GOP, but the voters that he deceived in that district. So the GOP owes it to them. Now, Congressman, I understand what you're saying about. I get the opposition research, but more importantly, the GOP should have done a better job of vetting this dude. That's all I'm saying. I mean, yep. two things can be more than one thing can be true. Yeah, I hear you. Once. I hear you. Uh, and I appreciate everything you're saying. And I have a feeling we haven't heard the end from George <laughs> Santos. That's my prediction tonight. Uh, but thank you all very much for uh, helping us with this developing story. Okay, so up next, nearly a full year into Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, CNN's Matthew Chance who was on a rooftop in Kyiv as the bombs started falling a year ago. He's going to look back at what it was like when the war began and what's happened since. One year ago, Russian forces were massing at the eastern border of Ukraine. But Vladimir Putin was oblivious to the fact that his forces would soon face a mighty Ukraine resistance, a resistance so strong it would leave his army hobbled almost a year later. There's been so much senseless loss since then, so much pain. It was around this time of night that the war first broke out and CNN's Matthew Chance was there and he reflects on what it's been like to cover Putin's ruthless invasion. When the invasion first began, I was standing on top of the roof of a hotel in the center of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, basically on television, um, having a conversation with a bunch of colleagues about how it was unlikely that Vladimir Putin, even though he had built up tens of thousands of forces 
on the borders of Ukraine uh, to the east, how unlikely it was that he was going to take that step, cross the Rubicon and launch a full scale invasion is on the hands of the uh, Ukrainians who, who, who resist. Oh, I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here behind me. And it was a, a really shocking experience because, you know, not only was I having to report on the bombardment of Kiev, but I also had to you know, radically recalculate what was going on, what was happening in, in this country that I've been covering for so many years. Oh, there's another one. Oh. I've got a flak jacket right here. Let me just get it, get it on. Those first hours after the invasion were pretty frenetic. We didn't know what was really going on. There were all sorts of reports about Russian paratroopers moving into positions around the city. There was one particularly worrying report that airborne Russian special forces had moved into an airbase north of the Ukrainian capital in, in an area called Gostomel. Gostomel, it was the uh, Antonov airbase. These troops you can see over here, they are Russian airborne forces. I started chatting to that commander and in the conversation I said to him, so, you know, look, give me, give me an idea of what we're seeing here. Where, where are the Russians, I said. And he said to me, you know, what do you, what do you mean? He looked really confused. He said, what do you mean, where are the Russians? And I said, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go live in a minute on CNN. You know, I want to, I want to tell people where the, where the Russian forces have got to. And, and he looked at me and he said, where are the Russians? We're the Russians. And at that point, we suddenly realized that we had come face to face. We crossed the front line inadvertently. And so it just shows us now for the first time just how close Russian forces have got towards the center of the Ukrainian capital. I think what was most you know, amazing, most surprising, I suppose, about those first few days was the level of resistance that we saw and that we witnessed by ordinary Ukrainians, as well as the Ukrainian military, of course, but we saw ordinary Ukrainian people pick up weapons, um, defend their streets, their buildings, their yards. I, I didn't think I would uh, join the, uh, this unit uh, just two days ago. I thought that, you know, I, I don't know how to handle guns. And I remember looking down and they had a crate full of petrol bombs. Um, you know, bottle, bottles with, full of gasoline with, with rags in the top that they were going to throw at Russian forces as they came. And I, and I asked the, one of the guys there, I said, what, what, did you make these? They're like, no, we didn't make them. It's the old women in the apartment blocks uh, that are making them and then delivering them to us. And it just really you know, rammed home what a multi-layered sort of defense that the Russians were confronting. If they, if they thought they were gonna walk into the Ukrainian capital and take it over without a fight, I mean, what a massive miscalculation that was. You know, within a couple of days of the invasion, uh, we traveled to uh, just a short distance from, from the capital, a bridge where there'd been a, a battle just a, an hour or two before we got there. Right within the past few hours, there has been a ferocious battle here on the outskirts of Kiev. And this is one of those Russian Soviet era vehicles, which is completely burned out. You can see this is a bridge actually, is an access point to the northwest of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. And the Russian column that has come down here has been absolutely 
hammered. So that was a very, very disturbing moment in the conflict. But, but it was also very profound in, in the sense that it, it just showed that, that Russia's calculation of sending a light armored columns into Ukraine to take the capital, to decapitate the Ukrainian government was not working. And it was not just not working, but it was, it was devastating to the Russian armed forces. I think one of the most incredible aspects of this conflict so far has been the dramatic transformation of Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, from a, uh, an actor and comedian turned politician to president, turned, you know, iconic war leader. I managed to speak to him. I was one of the first journalists to speak to him in his bunker in central Kiev. And it's very important for people in the United States to understand that despite the fact that the war is taking place in Ukraine, it's essentially for values in life, for democracy, for freedom. Therefore, this war is for all the world. And that message should be sent far and wide, from Ukraine to people in the United States, so they understand what it is like for us here, what we're fighting for, and why support for Ukraine matters. And it's incredible that Zelensky, from very early on, knew that he had to make this war much uh, broader in, 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 in its impact. It, it wasn't just, it couldn't be just be a war that, that Ukraine was fighting. It had to be a war that the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the West, was invested in. I think 2022 will be remembered as the year that Russia hurled itself into the abyss or, or was hurled into the abyss by, by Vladimir Putin and his extraordinary war in Ukraine. Not only is the country facing a potentially devastating military defeat with, with tens of thousands of dead, if not, if not more, but also it's facing economic catastrophe. Our thanks to Matthew Chance for all of that insight and reporting. So on a much lighter note, here at home, millions of people are getting ready to return their holiday gifts. And a lot of that is online. Well, online retailers have changed the rules and now it could cost you. So we're gonna tell you what you need to know and talk about our worst gifts ever. Next. Okay, by now you've opened your gifts. You like some of them, others are total junk. But if your gifts were bought online, returning them could now cost you. The age of free returns is over. Many retailers are now putting in stricter return policies that will charge you for restocking and repackaging. How this will change all of our lives, well, let's ask. Back with us, we have Molly Jongfast, Juliette Kayam, Charlie Dent, and Nina Turner. Charlie, I read your notes. Um, is your wife to blame for this entire change of policy? <laughs> Well, I talked to her before I came on this segment. She is against refund fees, and I am for them for the very simple reason is that millions of people like my wife, they'll order a piece of clothing, but they'll buy three or four sizes, knowing damn well that they're going to return most of them. Uh, they do this all the time. This is expensive. You know, I never shop online, I'll have you know. I bought a few books a few years ago. Now, I go to stores. I walk into the store. I know what I'm going to get before I walk in, and I go buy it. And so, you know, look, these refund fees, to me, they make sense. I understand why retailers are, are doing it. And frankly, if this discourages my wife from shopping online, I'm all for it. Um, I resemble some of those remarks, Charlie, <laughs> that, that you're blaming your wife for. But uh, that's hilarious. So, Juliet, this is going to here are the list of um, 
major chains that are changing their policy that everybody should know about. Uh, Anthropology, Zara, H&M, Abercrombie & Fitch, J. Crew. Basically, they are now going to charge something like $7.50 for when you return their stuff. Because as Charlie points out, don't all of us sometimes order multiple things in yes. different sizes because we don't feel like going to the store and trying it on. So then we try it on at home and then we yeah. return it and it used to be free of charge. Yeah, shopping is miserable and uh, and doing it online has made it uh, more bearable. I'm going to, uh, uh, for working parents uh, and working mothers, it is ideal uh, because you don't have to waste a Saturday, uh, but let alone for holiday shopping. I'm going to say one thing as, as, the, as the queen of Cyber Monday, uh, which I, I take, I, I love it. Uh, you can get a lot done uh, and maybe have to return some things. But this is this to me strike. Uh, uh, they must done, have done some calculations that they think they will win uh, rather than deter uh, uh, people from shopping online. And I, I would do it now for me, it, it will be more of a deterrence, uh, from doing anything online, which is not, not necessarily good for the retailers. Nina, is this going to change your life? I mean, they, not necessarily my life, but a lot of people will be impacted by this. They need to make sure that they have that policy up front So people know, and that folks, uh, should shop you know, where they can take the items back into the store if they have to. I mean, some of these chains have made lots of money. Inflation, I know, has an impact, but it's having an impact on the buyer as well. And so in some cases, I, I think that this is uh, unfair. People are shopping. That's what you want them to do. And they should be able to return their items. Mm-hmm. Um, how many uh, presents do you plan to return, Molly? You know, I we don't do a ton of presents in my house. You don't? Yeah. So I'm not going to return anything. You told me earlier that you have never liked <laughs> Sorry. anything never. that anybody's given to never. you. Never. That's why. How is that possible? I mean, because if I wanted it, I would get it for myself. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I get a lot of socks. Sometimes wow. they're good socks. I mean, yeah. you know, I think my... People around me know enough not to get me stuff. Don't <laughs> ever don't get like Molly it. more socks, guys. Okay, <laughs> all of the friends that are watching right now. Um, Juliet, worst gift ever? Uh, a guy uh, <laughs> got me earrings, and I don't have pierced ears. Oh, mm-hmm. that is bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what happened? Yeah, what, then what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, gone, gone. Got it. Okay. That to me is a sign that you're not paying attention. (laughs) Molly gets her socks. So I'd like the socks, but I don't need the earrings. That's awesome. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas to all. Happy holidays. Thanks so much for watching. Really appreciate you guys. And our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.